All right, hello, Christ community. Greetings to all of our campuses, our West Campus and our Traditions venue, um, and all of us at 15th Street. We are glad that you are here. I'm so glad to be here. It is, it is just fun to be a part of what God is doing here at Christ Community. I'm super excited about something happening this weekend. As many of you know, um, we as a church are in the midst of a vision journey called for the city and beyond, which is a vision to impact several specific areas of need in our city and around the world. These include things like poverty and children in need and leadership development. In fact, I want to encourage you to put on your calendar um, the weekend of March 4th and 5th. So during our service, that's in three weeks, during our services that weekend, we're going to be celebrating some one-year anniversary of for the city and beyond. And so it's going to be, it'll be a great opportunity for those of you who are relatively new to Christ community to kind of hear about what For the City and Beyond is all about. It'll be a great opportunity also for those of you, many of you who have been a part of this story, investing in people and financially or whatever, just to, you can hear an update about some of the things that God has been doing through For the City and Beyond this past year. And we're going to just refocus our hearts on this amazing vision that God is calling us to pursue. So again, that's going to be in three weeks, March 4th and 5th. Don't miss church that weekend. It's going to be great. Okay, so back to the reason why I'm so excited about this weekend. One of the initiatives in the For the City and Beyond vision is focused on the area of refugees. We as a church, we, we, we as a church want to be for refugees in our community. These people have fled war and conflict and danger in their own countries and have come to our community looking to find a safe place for their family. So this focus on refugees is not just a recent kind of thing around here. This has been a part of our heartbeat for years. And, and God has been opening up some really cool doors for this to continue. And so one of these doors is with the Karini refugee population. This is a people group that have fled from terrible, horrible violence in their own country of Burma. And so about three years ago, someone in our church had a vision from God to begin reaching out to these people in our city. And that step of obedience resulted in some of these dear people coming to faith in Christ and a church being established, um, which we have called Christ Community International. It is one of seven, only seven, Karini churches in the entire United States. So this church initially began meeting in Centennial Elementary School, and then they moved to Zoe's, but recently they approached us about meeting here at our 15th Street campus and, and being more connected to the DNA and the children's ministry at Christ Community. So we are very excited to announce that that is happening this weekend. They will begin services on Sundays at 15th Street, here at 15th Street, at 11 o'clock in the fireside room. And so I want to introduce you to a few of their leaders. Would you join me, if, if you all could come on up here, would you join me in welcoming uh, some leaders from Christ Community International? So this is uh, Shaare and Tuwa and Pume and Naju and uh, Kerry. Uh, and uh, so um, we are so excited to have you here. And to be a part of this journey with you. 
we have been on a journey together that started at Centennial Elementary School and then to Zoe's and now to 15th Street. And we are so glad you are here. We are partnering together in the gospel. And we, we uh, want to get to know you better. And we pray for God's blessing on Christ Community International. So before we pray for them, I wanted to just say a few things to you as a congregation. Um, let me say, first of all, that we really have a wonderful opportunity to welcome these people here. So even if we don't speak the same language, um, some things are cross-language, like smiles and handshakes, okay? We can still smile and shake their hand and just let them know that, 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 that uh, we're glad that they are here. And so we also encourage you to, you're welcome anytime to visit their church service um, at 11 o'clock in the fireside room here at the 15th Street campus. So let me, uh, let me pray for them and uh, join with me as we pray for them. Father, thank you so much for this congregation. Thank you for these leaders and their service for you. We pray for these many families and people who represent the uh, um, Kareni um, uh, people at Christ Community International. We pray for this whole church that you would bless them, that you would provide everything they need and that many more would come to know Christ as a result. We pray for the, the, the people um, involved in this congregation. And for the challenges they face in a new culture. And fleeing from very difficult circumstances in their own country. We pray your grace upon them your comfort and strength, your joy and your peace. So we entrust this church to you. And we thank you that we are one church together. Serving you and loving you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Welcome again. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>
That's fun. Okay, so we're we're very very excited um, just partnering together with this uh, these amazing people. So today we are continuing a teaching series that we're calling In Plain Text. In this series, we are walking through the text of the Book of Luke, which is a fascinating book because it gives us a detailed eyewitness based account of Jesus' life. Luke was a physician who interviewed dozens of people that actually knew Jesus, and they saw Jesus, and they heard. Jesus. Jesus in person. And so this book is so helpful for us in getting to know the real Jesus. And what we're discovering is that Jesus blows up so many of the stereotypes and assumptions that people often have about Christianity. Well, the passage that we're looking at today um, blows up a couple of, of those assumptions. So if you have your Bible or a Bible app or whatever, feel free to turn to Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. Now, in this passage, we see a, a fast fascinating encounter between Jesus and two different people, very different people, a devout religious leader and a sexually immoral woman. And I'm going to tell you right up front that the shining example in this story is not the devout religious leader. It is the sinful woman. She is the one who shows us what Christianity, what experiencing Jesus is ultimately about. Now, I want us to camp on this for just a moment before we jump into the story. One of the assumptions that many people have about Christianity or about the Bible is that they are anti-woman, that the Christianity is anti-woman, but nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus elevates the value of women which is remarkable given the culture in which they, they lived. In the Greco-Roman culture, women were little more viewed as little more than property. Often they were sexually exploited. When a baby was born, and it happened to be a, a, a girl, she was often left to die. That was normal. Women had very little value in that culture. And that's the culture in which Jesus was, was born. In, 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 that's the culture in which he ministered. And now, now with that backdrop in mind, I want us to look, we're going to jump ahead and look at the end of the passage that we're looking at today. It's right after this story we're going to read. Right after this, look at these words in Luke chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. After this, Jesus traveled from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him. And also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Now this is amazing. Jesus is offering these women a new community, a new sense of value and purpose. They traveled with Jesus, which was unheard of in this day, in that, that day and age, unheard of. They learned from Jesus along with these men. They helped support him financially. They, they were from various economic classes and backgrounds, but they were united by a love for this man. Dorothy Sayers, who was the first woman to receive a degree from Oxford, she tells about why she became a devoted follower of Jesus. Listen to this. She writes this. The women around Jesus had never known a man like this man, a prophet and teacher who never nagged at them, 
never flattered or coaxed or patronized, who never made jokes about them, who rebuked without demeaning and praised without condescension, who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who, who had no ax to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend. Jesus valued women in a way that was much needed, not only in that culture, but in our culture as well. I wonder if the angst being expressed at various women's marches and rallies these days is not fundamentally about politics, but rather is fueled by the fact that we, perhaps we as a culture, haven't valued women the way Jesus did. Any form of Christianity that doesn't highly value women is not the real deal. Any form of Christianity that doesn't value women is not the real deal. Okay, that's really important. I wanted us to talk about that, but now back to this story. And we're going to see that theme of valuing women throughout the book of Luke. It's just, a, it's just really amazing. So <clears throat> for that culture, it's amazing and very, um, uh, it's very significant for us. So now to our story from Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Okay, so we are introduced here to these two very different people. The Pharisee, whose name we'll find out later, is Simon. <clears throat> he invites Jesus to his home for dinner, and Jesus accepts. Now, we know that in that culture, these kinds of dinners um, were not usually private affairs. People, people from the community would come, and they were kind of like a banquet. People would come and, and observe. Um, so it was not unusual to have a woman in the crowd listening in the, in the home, kind of in the crowd. They're listening to what was happening. <clears throat> Excuse me. But this woman was unique. Luke tells us that she lived a sinful life. Now, this was most likely a reference to sexual immorality, not tax evasion, okay? She was probably a prostitute or a woman who was known to sleep around. Now, in a small village like this, everyone would know this. She lived with a sense of shame and condemnation. She was an outcast, you know, a woman that you warned your children to stay away from or to not be like, but when she heard that Jesus was eating at Simon's house, she came to this house, she came to the house with a, with a jar of perfume. Now, what is clearly implied in this text, and this is important, what's clearly implied in the text is that she had already been impacted by Jesus in some way before the dinner. She was coming because Jesus had touched her life in some way. He had valued her. He had extended mercy and forgiveness to her, which, which we'll, we'll see a little later in the passage, that her many sins had been forgiven, past tense. So she is coming to this house, not trying to discover who Jesus is, but in response to a previous encounter with him which explains why she came with a bottle of perfume. She wanted to express gratitude in some way for what he had already done for her. Verse 38, as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. 
Okay, so, so what's happening here is that the men, Luke says, the men are reclining around the table. What does that mean? The dining room table, the dining table in that culture was very short, much shorter than ours. They didn't have chairs around the table. Instead, what they would do is they would sort of lay down with, with their, their, their head near the table and their feet were kind of away from the table. And so while Jesus and Simon are eating around the table in this way, this woman comes and, and, and she quietly stands over Jesus' feet. But she is so overcome with emotion at what Jesus has done for her that she begins weeping, not just a little tear here and there. Her tears are flowing freely. Martin Luther calls these tears heart water, heart water. They are flowing from the gratitude in her heart and they are inadvertently landing on Jesus' feet. Now in that day, people traveled by foot. They didn't have sidewalks, you know, or, or streets, and they didn't have covered shoes. Everyone wore sandals, right? And so their feet went barefoot. So their feet would be dirty, really dirty. I mean, we're talking mud, manure, all sorts of stuff, which is why it was customary and honoring in that culture to wash the feet of your guests when they would enter your home. But that doesn't happen here in this case. Simon doesn't make sure that Jesus' feet are washed, which will come up a bit later in the story. So, so this, this woman realizes that her tears are falling on Jesus' dirty feet. So she bends down, and, and, and because she doesn't have a towel, she lets down her hair, which was a no-no in that culture, because that spoke of um, immorality and all that stuff. But she let down her hair, and she begins to wipe his feet, with her hair, and then she begins to kiss his feet and to pour perfume on them. Now, as you can imagine, this did not go unnoticed. I'm sure there was a very uncomfortable silence around this dinner table. What is she doing? This is so inappropriate. Verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. So this Pharisee, this devout religious leader in the community is very bothered by what he sees. He thinks to himself, if Jesus really was a man of God, if he really was a prophet like he claims, he would know this woman's the, the, her reputation, her, her sinfulness. He wouldn't allow himself to be touched by her. Now Jesus knows exactly what Simon is thinking which is a scary thought, right, for all of us, I guess, because that's, that's the way Jesus is, right? He knows what Simon is thinking. Because Simon doesn't say it out loud. He just thinks it. Jesus knows it. So he utilizes this moment as a teaching opportunity. And he tells a story, a very simple story, and yet a brilliant, powerful story. Verse 40, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? 
Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? He knew the answer. Simon had been watching her the whole time. Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. This is brilliant. This is brilliant. Jesus uses a very simple story to expose Simon's self-righteous, proud heart. Now, there are, there are a couple of cultural things that we need to understand in order to feel the full weight of this passage. First of all, we need to understand that in Middle Eastern culture, they are huge on hospitality. We don't really get this in our culture. We don't. Not nearly to the degree that other cultures do in the Middle East. So very, very huge on, 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 on hospitality. So if you, in these cultures, if, if you didn't show amazing, I mean over-the-top hospitality to a guest in your home, it was shameful. Not only for you, but for the whole community. They would be ashamed at how this guest was treated. It was a total insult to your guest which may have been exactly what Simon intended. He invited Jesus into his home, but he didn't have his servants wash Jesus' feet. He didn't greet Jesus with a kiss on the cheek, which was a common welcome. He didn't pour olive oil on his head, which was another gesture of hospitality and value. He did none of these things, which was a huge show of disrespect towards Jesus. And everyone in the room knew it. It was a slap in the face, and everyone in the room knew it. Now, Jesus didn't respond in anger or defensiveness, but he does respond by speaking the truth in love, exposing the real spiritual issue at stake. This wasn't about Jesus defending his reputation. He didn't need to do that, and he didn't do that. This was about Jesus exposing Simon's heart. Simon was in the presence of the Messiah, he was in the presence of God in the flesh, but because of his self-righteous pride, he showed no hospitality towards Jesus. Now, in contrast, a sinful, a sexually immoral woman, a prostitute, humbly offers Jesus the hospitality and love and honor that he deserves. And Jesus, in eight simple words, exposes the root issue in Simon's heart. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. In this amazing statement, Jesus articulates two paradigm-shifting, life-changing, earth-shattering truths that we desperately need to understand in order to fully experience Jesus. We've got to understand these two things. Here, here's the first truth. The biggest barrier... To us, experience Jesus love, experiencing Jesus' love is not our sin, it's religion. The biggest barrier to us experiencing the love of Jesus is not our sin, 
It's religion. See, when, when, it, when it comes to having and living in a, a personal relationship with Jesus, religion is a way bigger barrier than our own sinfulness. So let, let's look at this in the story here. In the, in the story, Simon the Pharisee, he exemplifies religion. Now, what do I mean by religion? See, religion is focused on one question. What do I need to do in order to be accepted by God? That's the question of religion. What do I need to do in order to be accepted by God? Every world religion has a list to answer this question. Pray a certain number of times every day. Be kind to people. Give 10% of your income, whatever. Every world religion has the, they have these rules that, that you must keep in order to be acceptable to God. And Simon, in this story, he exemplifies this. The Pharisees were the Jewish leaders of the day. They had hundreds of laws and rules that they had made up that, that they, were, they were trying to, 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 to follow in order to be a moral, morally pure person. They had all these rules that they added to the Bible, all these rules to be morally pure in order to be acceptable to God. Do this and don't do that. And they diligently tried to follow all these rules. So their entire approach was based on the idea that they, through their own morality, through their own obedience, that they could become acceptable to God. That God accepted them based on their religious performance. That's religion. And, and, and all of us are vulnerable to it, to, 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 to depending upon our own performance in order to make us acceptable to God. In essence, what we're doing, really, we're trying to be our own savior. We're trying to be our own savior. That, that's religion. And it's incredibly dangerous, spiritually speaking, because it fosters the very attitude that we see in Simon, a smug self-righteousness pride, a judgmental attitude towards other people who aren't following the rules nearly as well as we are. And here's the biggest danger of all. Religion blinds us to our own sin. It blinds us to our own sin. See, Simon didn't see his need for forgiveness. He didn't see his need for a savior. And he ended up missing what Jesus had to offer. He who was forgiven little Loves little. The sexually immoral woman in this story, the woman who prostituted herself, who worked at strip clubs or whatever, she is way closer to the kingdom than Simon because she realized her brokenness. She saw her sin. She knew she couldn't fix herself. She, 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 couldn't, she knew she couldn't cleanse her soul. She knew she needed a savior. See, those who don't think they need forgiveness are way farther away from Jesus than those who know their lives are broken. See, the, those, the, 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 those who don't think they need forgiveness are way farther away from Jesus than those who know their lives are a mess. Again, the biggest barrier to us experiencing Jesus' love is not our sin. It's religion. There, there may be some of you here, and your whole approach to God, your whole kind of framework, as you understand Christianity or whatever, it's, it's religion. 
You, you believe that the way to have a relationship with God is by trying to be a good person. It's by going to church when you can. You know, as long as your good deeds kind of outweigh your bad deeds, then God will accept you. And that's religion. That's not the gospel. See, your approach is completely dependent upon your effort. It's completely dependent upon uh, your performance. See, in your, in your system, you don't need a savior. <laughs> you don't need a savior. You're trying to save yourself. See, for you, Jesus is a good teacher, but nothing more than that. And again, I'm not, I'm not condemning anyone. I, I mean, that's, a lot of people think this. I totally understand it. In, in this system, Jesus is a good teacher, but nothing more than that. The problem is Jesus' mission was about so much more than, than teaching. And he made this very clear. He came to be our savior, to, to, to die on the cross for our sins so that we could be, for, be forgiven. I mean, if he just came to be a good teacher, there was no reason for him to die on the cross. So that, see, the, the cross is, what answer, is, is how Christianity answers this question. How can I be acceptable to God? It's by admitting your sin. It, 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 it's by admitting you can't be acceptable to God on your own. And receiving Jesus as Savior so that he becomes your righteousness. It's his, it's not about what you do, it's about what he has done. See, the immoral woman in the story understood that. In her brokenness, she received Jesus and experienced his forgiveness. But unfortunately, Simon was light years away from that. <laughs> He was light years away from experiencing Jesus in this way. See, again, religion is a way bigger barrier to experiencing God's love than our sin is. This applies to us as believers as well. I mean, religion can start creeping into our relationship with God where we start to subtly believe that God loves us because of what we do. Or his love is dependent upon our obedience. And so we start living this roller coaster life, right? Where when we're doing well, oh, God loves me so much, right? And, and then, but then when we mess up, we, we, he, we think, oh, he withdraws his love for a while. And we feel like we have to kind of earn our way back, you know, into his love. That's not the gospel. That's religion. The gospel says, because of what Jesus has done, you are loved permanently, you are loved permanently. Nothing can change that. Nothing can change his love for you. That's the gospel. Recently, Raylene and I went on a, a retreat with a married retreat with a, a, another pastor couple in the area. And, and overnight, one, one night over dinner, this, this man began to share his story. He, was a, pre, he is, was a preacher's kid growing up, and he received Jesus as a young child. And through his middle school and high school years, you know, he, he walked with Christ and all that. But in college, he began to, to drift, and he got involved in a band that was not a good situation. Lots of drugs, lots of partying. He, you know, and he, he didn't stop believing in God. He just didn't want anything to do with God during this season in his life, right? He wanted to experience real life, right? Um, and so, so the, while this is going on, one night after a concert that they had done and lots of partying and all that, he came home er, very early in the morning. It was like two, two three o'clock in the morning. He came home drunk and high, and he collapsed in this chair in, in the living room. Um, where he was, where he was living with college friends or whatever, and and he and he told us as he was telling the story, he, he said that as he was sitting there, drunk and high in this chair, the presence of the Lord came upon him, 
And he was like, no, God, no, 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 stay away. I want you to stay away. I don't want you here. But God's presence wouldn't leave. This, this young man just felt this overwhelming love for him. Even in his brokenness, this overwhelming love. That experience of love, not lectures from other people, it was that experience of love that began to change his heart, pointing him back to Jesus. And as I heard him tell that story, I was reminded of this lie that we often believe, that, that when we as believers mess up, when we sin, you know, when we drift in our relationship with God, that somehow he leaves us. God leaves us. He distances himself from us. But that's not true. When Jesus hung on the cross, he paid for all of our sin. Even the sins we haven't committed yet. He paid for all of our sin. God's face and his heart, they turned away from Jesus on the cross. Why? So that they would never turn away from us again. Jesus paid the penalty. So God doesn't distance himself. He doesn't leave us. God's face and his heart are towards us permanently because of Jesus. So as, as my friend's story illustrates, that kind of love, it is so powerful. It's, it's, so, it's life-changing. It changes us. That kind of love changes us. Which leads to the second truth that we see in this passage. When we allow ourselves to be loved by Jesus, it moves us to worship him. When we allow ourselves to be loved by Jesus, it moves us to worship him. See, on one hand, we have Simon who didn't see his need for a savior. And because of that, he was unmoved to show any love or any respect for Jesus. But then on the other hand, we have this woman that, that, who Jesus met in, in the shame of her sinfulness. And, and he loved her in that place. He forgave all of her sin. He removed her shame. So how does she respond to this amazing love? A love that she didn't earn, a love that she didn't deserve. How does she respond? respond. She worshiped him. She knelt before Jesus. She wiped his feet with her tears of joy. She kissed his feet with all the gratitude her heart could muster. Then she broke an alabaster jar of perfume and she generously poured it on his feet. See, all of these things were displays of heartfelt worship towards this Savior who loved her in her brokenness. She wasn't trying to earn anything here. This was a response of love towards the Savior who had loved her in her brokenness. See, Jesus says, whoever has been forgiven little loves little, which also means that whoever has been forgiven much loves much. Dallas Willard, um, who is an author, he's now deceased, but very, very bright and brilliant mind and just amazing man, really. He, he once said this, what you really think about Jesus is revealed by what you do after you find out that you don't have to do anything. I'm going to read that again because that's, that's deep, okay? But let's think about this. What you really believe about, what you really think about Jesus is revealed by what you do after you find out that you don't have to do anything. See, that, that, that reveals what we really believe about him. Are we responding out of genuine love and gratitude or out of guilt and fear? What do we really believe? 
What do we really think about Jesus? See, when we allow ourselves to be loved by Jesus, the way we're seeing here, when we become aware of his amazing forgiveness towards us, all the things that he has forgiven us for, when, 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 we, when we allow that to really penetrate our hearts, that moves us to worship him. I'm not, I'm not just talking about singing. I mean, worship is multifaceted. It certainly may involve singing songs of praise to God, but it is, it is way more than that. I think of a, a single mom um, in our church named Andrea, who has served so faithfully in our Kids Connection ministry. Now she serves in our um, Velocity Middle School ministry. When, when I go pick up our son, Josh, um, from Velocity, and I see the joy on Andrea's face, after spending an hour and a half with middle schoolers, I mean, come on, right? Um, <clears throat> she is still smiling. When I see that joy on her face, I see a worshiper. I see a worshiper. I see a woman whose life has been touched by the love of Jesus. And her instinctive response to that love is to serve others. It's to share it with middle schoolers. When I walk in here for any of our services, weekend services, and I see a young family with, with small kids, and I know it wasn't easy to get to church that evening or that morning, but here they are, and then I see them in our worship service, I see them raising their hands and singing with all their hearts, I realize, you know what, this is not an ought to. This is a want to. They want to worship Jesus with other believers. It is a response of love to the Savior who has done so much for them. Every week, I get a list of people who have given for the first time to Christ's community. Not amounts or anything. I just get a list of the people who have given for the first time to Christ's community, which is a huge thing. I mean, it is, it is awesome. And one of the thrilling things to me is how many college age and 20-something adults are on that list. I mean, here are these young people who, who could easily be spending these resources on other things, but they are so in love with Jesus that they are responding by giving to him something that is important to them. This is an act of worship. It is a heartfelt expression of love to Jesus. It's awesome. Whether it is serving or giving or singing, none of these things are to be coerced or guilt-motivated. No, no, no. They, 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 they flow. They flow from a heart that has been and is being touched by the amazing love of Jesus. Those who have been forgiven much love much. So let me, let me just ask each one of us here as we're thinking about this. Let me just ask, does your relationship with Jesus reflect these tangible evidences of heartfelt, passionate love for him? Would the people, let me say, would, would the people around you describe you as someone who is obviously in love with Jesus? Would they see evidence of the impact that Jesus is having in your life and your response to that? Or is your walk with Jesus becoming increasingly ho-hum, apathetic, self-centered, obligatory? I, I urge all of us here, Open your heart afresh 
to Jesus' love. Remember, 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 remember all that he has forgiven you for. And then let your life become a worshipful response to this amazing Savior, to the amazing Savior that he is. Let your life just be a worshipful response to the amazing Savior that Jesus is. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we uh, welcome you. And we ask you to pour out love into our hearts. The love of Jesus. You would help us see Jesus for who he is to us. Just think for just a moment. Think of all that he has forgiven you for. It's all washed clean. Your debt has been canceled completely. Just let that reality sink deeply into your heart of what your Savior has done for you. And let that stir a response of love and gratitude. Holy Spirit, would you do that in us? Would you do that? And while those of you who are, um, you've placed your trust in Christ, I just want you to sit in that for a, a few moments. Or while you're doing that, while you're sitting in that, I, I want to give an invitation because there may be some of you here, I'm sure there are, who you realize as I was describing, you're, you're on a religious path. Some of you here, you're trying to be your own savior. You're, you're trying to clean up your own life. You're thinking that God accepts you because of what you do because of how nice you are, or you know, if the good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, God's gonna accept you, that's religion. What you're basically saying is you can be your own savior. And religion separates us from God. What he offers you is not religion, he offers you a relationship with Jesus, who has paid the price for your sin. This is a gift that you receive. It's not something you work for. If someone hands you a gift, you don't say, hey, let me pay you for that. No, you don't. It's a gift. Jesus is offering you a gift tonight. He's offering you a gift of a relationship with him, a love relationship with him that he's already paid for. He just wants you to receive it. So if that's you, I want to encourage you, let's receive this gift. And and I'm going to lead you in a prayer where you can receive this gift. So pray along with me in the silence of your heart. 
And dear God, I acknowledge that you are holy. You are whole. You are perfect. And I'm not. My life's kind of a mess. I've done my own thing. Maybe even I've tried to be good and everything. But I know, I know I'm not perfect. Far from it. I fall way short of your perfection. And I realize there's nothing I could do to get to you. No matter how hard I try to clean my life up, I can never achieve your holiness, your acceptance. But even though I couldn't do anything to get to you, you came to me. You sent your son Jesus to this earth to live a perfect life. And then Jesus, you died on the cross for my sin. You died in my place. You took God's judgment that I deserved. You took it upon yourself. Thank you for doing that for me. And I open my heart to your love right now. I choose to place my trust in you. I bring you my failures and my fears and my doubts and my sin and, and, and my guilt and shame. All of that, I bring that to you and I leave it with you, Jesus. And in exchange for all that, I now receive your life. I receive you. Come live in me through the presence of your Holy Spirit. Change me from the inside out through the power of your love. So God, I pray for anyone who prayed that prayer. Help them grow in their relationship with you. Pour out your love upon them. And I pray for all of us here who have experienced you in this way. Would you continue to open our hearts to the amazing Savior you are? And that our lives would be a worshipful response to the incredible Savior you are, who has forgiven us for so much. We worship you. We love you. It's a privilege to be here. It's a privilege to worship and serve and give and all of these things. It's just a privilege because you've done so much for us.